This evening we're looking at uh, Zechariah, the second and third night visions, and that be 1 verse 18, and we'll continue through the end of chapter 13. Hear the word of God. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head, and these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? He said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has... Uh, sorry that has sent me sing and rejoice O daughter of Zion for behold I come and I will dwell in your midst declares the Lord and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. <clears throat> Let's pray. O oh God of truth, your word is truth. Sanctify us by your truth so that we might be more holy as you are holy. We pray that you would help us to understand this passage before us and to take its message to heart, to believe all of its promises and to yield obedience to all of its precepts so that we may walk in a manner worthy of you and order our way rightly, rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. Bless us to this end, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> In the, first, in the first six chapters of Zechariah's prophecy, we have recorded, for our edification and encouragement, uh, we have recorded a sequence of eight visions seen by the prophet on the night of the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, King Darius. And taken together, these, this series of visions has for its overall theme, as you heard me say last Sunday, uh, the restoration and consummation of God's kingdom crowned by his royal house and holy temple. 
Now, to be sure, the record of their, their actual fulfillment is found nowhere in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Nowhere within the history of Israel under the Old Covenant, types and shadows. You just won't find it there. And why not? Well, it's simply because these night visions lifted the prophet's eyes to behold the ultimate realities of the new covenant and the arrival of the messianic and eschatological age. And it was that which constituted the good news that Zechariah preached to his generation by way of, you know, foretelling or forecasting and uh, by way of anticipation. And it is that saying good news that I'm privileged to preach to you this evening by way of fulfillment and application in Jesus Christ and his church. And this evening we want to look at the second and third night visions which together develop in greater detail uh, the Lord's response to the prayer of the pre-incarnate Christ, which we considered last Sunday in that first night vision. In that night vision, you may recall, the pre-incarnate Christ appears to Zechariah as a man or as a rider mounted on a red horse who is identified as the angel of He is cast into the dual role of the avenging judge of the nations and the advocate and intercessor of the covenant community. And we saw how the incongruity between the, the ease and comfort of the nations and the difficult state of poverty, on the other hand, elicits from the angel of the Lord this cry of intercession, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And this prayer prevails. This intercession uh, is not uh, left unanswered. Without delay, the Lord responds with gracious good news. Good news, which the prophet is then commissioned to proclaim publicly um, and specifically, he is to proclaim. The bad news on the one hand that God is exceedingly angry with the nations and will punish them in his wrath. And on the other hand, the good news that God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, for his people. Restore her fortunes in his mercy. And now moving into Zechariah's second and third night visions now, uh, we're provided more detail they each develop these two main themes introduced at the end of the first night vision. With the second vision emphasizing the retribution against the nations, the, the judgment, and the third vision emphasizing the, the restoration of Jerusalem. So first, in, at the end of the last paragraph of chapter 1, where Zechariah describes this second vision, We'll just turn to that. But remember how in the first vision, the anger of the Lord against those who oppress his people had been expressed. In chapter 1, verse 15, for example. But, but the, the consequences for those nations were not stated. But here in his second vision, um, is seen 
coming on those who harass and devastate the Lord's people, who oppose and oppress them. And so when Zechariah lifts his eyes, uh, in verse 18, he's startled to see horns. Four horns. And what do these horns symbolize? Well, throughout the Old Testament, horns symbolize strength and power, especially imperial power. And the symbol obviously comes from the horns of animals, like of a bull or a ram, for example. Horns used both for defense and attack. The horns were considered the source of their strength. And the horns that appear in this vision represent you know, the raw power of the pagan nations. And why four? As a number of four universal, uh, symbolizes the totality or universality of things, just as uh, uh, the four chariots in Zechariah chapter 6 are connected to the four winds of heaven, thereby symbolizing you know, the scope of the whole world, kind of the four points of the compass, if you like. So something similar, similarly comprehensive is in view here. The four horns probably signify, uh, or at least what I would suggest, is they signify the totality of the hostile nations of the world, uh, the pagan enemies to the north, south, east, and west, antagonizing Zion on every side, uh, assailing her inhabitants, uh, making war against the saints from, from every direction. And so, in all likelihood, I think these four horns represent, you know, not four specific nations of the ancient Near East, like, you know, Syria, Babylon, Persia, whatever, but more likely all the oppressive world powers, the totality of the hostile nations that in, in defiance of heaven have raised themselves up against the Lord and his people, and that throughout the various eras or epochs of human history, and continuing all the way until the conclusion of history. <clears throat> well, this vision didn't end with the representation of the, the, the sort of anti-God satanic enmity being shown on all sides of the people of God, because that would hardly have been good news or conveyed comfort. Uh, what the Lord shows to Zechariah next in verse 20 is for craftsmen. These heavenly counteragents are God's instruments of retribution and deliverance and even, I think, rebuilding. And here there are four of them. Again, the number four, just the right number to match the hostile horns. They're equal to the task. And not only does the number of the craftsmen match the number of the horns, the matches the crime. You see, they're those who lifted themselves up against the Lord's people. Oh, they'll find themselves put in their place, cast down. And those who assaulted the Lord's people will find themselves under assault by the Lord. The cup of his wrath eventually shall come around to them all. And these instruments of the divine retribution are presented to our sight, not under the symbol of, you know, more horns or, you know, some symbol of rulers or military leaders or something along those lines, but under the symbol of craftsmen, skilled artisans, skilled with their hands in the working of wood and stone and metal. And I think that's probably because they've come not only to, to remove and cast down the horns of judgment, but also 
also to engage in the new building program of God, right? The, the rebuilding of the temple city and, and all that represents. Because the Lord, remember chapter 1, verse 16, and the background behind this, the Lord has promised to return to Jerusalem with mercy. His house shall be built in it, declares the Lord. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And so the comforting message of this vision is that the judgment of the world is already being put into effect wherever the Lord deploys his craftsmen, his counter-agents. Through them he brings his kingdom into this world. An unshakable kingdom which will eventually sweep away and replace every earthly power and kingdom. And indeed, this vision was sure to be comforting in Zechariah's time. But it has been so all ages. I think Calvin points this out nicely. He says uh, something like, though the church has always been surrounded with enemies on every side and will be until the last enemy is destroyed, and though Satan never ceases to kindle the fury of many, not only to be hostile to us, but also to destroy and consume us. Let this be our consolation, that the Lord has many craftsmen at hand. And then he summed up, he says, quote, The import of the whole vision is, in other words, the meaning of the whole vision is, that, through the ch that though the church would not be exempt and free from troubles, and those many, Yet God would have in his hand those remedies by which he would check all the assaults of the wicked, however impetuously and violently they may rage against his miserable church. So I think Calvin rightly sees this prophecy fulfilled in the church. <clears throat> and we keep that in mind as we go through the text. Uh, we have to go sort of quickly and skate the surface some because of the length of it. But next, the vision of the four craftsmen is <clears throat> followed by a vision that now opens with, you know, Zechariah, <clears throat> excuse me, lifting his eyes now to behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Chapter 2, verse 1. Well, who is this man? Well, I'd suggest, and I'm following, you know, certain interpreters here, there's some debate, um, that he is the same man who Zechariah saw mounted on a red horse in the first night vision. And who is that man? The angel of the Lord. And what's so special about that mysterious angel in the Old Testament? Well, the fact that he's sometimes identified with God and speaks as God, and at other times is distinguished from God as being sent by God. And so here he is now standing before Zechariah, the pre-incarnate son of God, in this vision, standing before the prophet with his surveyor's equipment in his hand, a measuring line. And where is he going? To Jerusalem, or to Zion. And for what purpose? To measure Jerusalem, to see how long and wide it should be. I know the ESV didn't quite put it like that, but the sense of his statement is actually ambiguous in the original Hebrew text. It won't go into that, but uh, the point is he could... Uh, either be saying that he intends to see how wide and long the city already is, that would be like the ESV using the word is, or, I think better, how wide and long it ought to be. 
right? The Hebrew lacks a verb, and the translator has to make a decision on which to supply. The question is whether the man's measuring Jerusalem to discover its present dimensions, that earth in, in uh, Judah, or, on the other hand, whether he is measuring what the dimensions of the future Jerusalem will be. And you could tell by my enthusiasm that I think that second option makes the most sense in the context. In other words, the man with the measuring line in his hand was proceeding to the site of future Jerusalem to mark out what he had determined its dimensions should be and would be. I think that interpretation really fits perfectly with the context and the use of the tense verbs. You can notice in uh, verses 4 and 5. As the man of the measuring line speaks to Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. And so this is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking. And what is he speaking about? He speaks first and foremost about himself, his advent, and also speaking about his church, or what Calvin called spiritual Jerusalem, Zion's future glory, a restoration so glorious that it can't be contained within the boundaries of the old covenant forms of realization. Such an extravagant picture of future Jerusalem breaks the bonds of the old covenant. It points beyond, it presses for a long-term realization beyond anything we find in the Old Testament record. See, because when when, by the time you, I mean, there's not too much left of the Old Testament at this point in Zechariah, you just have Malachi left. But, you know, when you reach the end of the Old Testament, by the time you get to the end of Malachi, this vision still remains an unrealized prediction. To this day, Jews are still waiting for its fulfillment, but we're not. Unless you're a premillennialist, maybe. But none of you are, because you're not premillennialists. And so we ought to agree with John Calvin, who had this to say in his commentary on these verses. He said, There is no doubt, but that God intended here to bear witness respecting the propagation of his church, which was to follow a long time afterwards, even after the coming of Christ. After. We hence conclude, this is Calvin still, we hence conclude that the spiritual Jerusalem is here described, which differs from all earthly cities. And so in other words, what we encounter here is an Old Testament picture, a prophetic picture, couched in Old Testament categories of what is enjoyed by the church of Jesus Christ, culminating in the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven, but now manifest here in his church. We might even say that what was for Zechariah a matter of eschatology is for us a matter of ecclesiology. And though this promise undoubtedly spoke to the immediate situation in Zechariah's day, it can't be contained within that period. It opens out from the prospects Testament church to include the wider vista of the New Testament church, of whom it is said, 
Prophets, you've heard many times that you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Well, establish that this vision is indeed a prophecy of the church. What is it teaching us? Uh, what is God's vision for his city, the city of God? And there are three things to note before we go on to verses 6 through 13. First is this, Jerusalem, and now you know what Jerusalem means in this text, right? Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. That's a great description of the church, isn't it? A city without walls. The most immediate meaning has to do with the boundless multiplication of its inhabitants. Right? In other words, by reason of its, 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 its abounding population, it would not have the bounding wall characteristic of ancient cities. And so literally it says that Jerusalem will be as villages without walls because of the sheer abundance of people and provisions coming in and inhabiting it. And the, so the idea is really that of an ever-growing urban sprawl, uh, the way our cities keep growing outwards today. And this vision of expansion is ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament church. We see this, we think back perhaps, uh, the best way to just make the connection is to think back to that first chapter of the book of Acts. Jesus sent his apostles to preach in Jerusalem, starting there, but he directed them to go outward from there. Right? To be his witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And see, that's exactly what happened. It's happening. This is the very thing revealed to Zechariah and proclaimed by him in the spirit of prophecy. An ever-spreading city of God that by this time in history has expanded to every continent on the earth. It's no longer confined within the boundaries of one nation or geographical location. It's no longer hemmed in by protective restrictions. The church is open to the whole world, composed of a great innumerable multitude, the fullness or pleroma of the elect, Jew and Gentile, or the, the, the fulfillment of the promises of Abraham, that in his seed all the nations would be blessed from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The new humanity, of which Paul says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So what a great picture of the church to, to, to always remember. Ours is a city without walls, or villages without walls. In other words, without needless barriers, open to, to all who will come, inviting, inviting to those who would inquire, sending out the... Wedding invitations, as it were. The second point has been verse 5. Um, I will be, this is again Jesus speaking uh, prior to his own incarnation and advent, but he says here, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. Now, paradoxically, what we see here is the city without walls, actually does have a wall around it. That wall is the Lord 
itself. And this description with the fire calls to mind, first, I think, the Garden of Eden, right? And fire produced by the flaming sword that turned every way to guard access to the tree of life. And that was to maintain the sanctity of the site, glory, where he dwelt. And yet in this case, the purpose of the fiery barrier, interestingly, is not to, to, to keep out, uh, to keep Adam out, but really to protect the multitudes, the vast multitudes on the inside, those who have been set apart fully unto the Lord. And the image also, I think, calls to mind the protection that the Lord had given his people when they left Egypt. The pillar of fire and cloud had been positioned between them and the pursuing armies of Egypt so that there could be no contact between them and their enemies. And now it is to be a wall of fire about surrounding the city which no hostile force could penetrate. So again, what a great picture of the church. Ours is a city with a wall of fire around it, a sacred city, and a secure city. And then thirdly, also in verse 5, the Lord declares, I will be the glory in her midst. And that I mean, these two great pictures, so far, that to me, or hopefully to you too, that's the greatest one. The greatest picture of the church. Glory, which refers to, to the presence of the Lord. And that presence marks the, the innermost and, and up treasure of the church's relationship with God. So we learn here, you know, the true glory of the Christian church. So often misunderstood. The true glory, it's not how many people attend. It's not how many members we have. It's not how much money is deposited in our bank account. It's not in any external pomp or power. It's not in our popularity or palatability or getting plaudits of the world. It's not in splendid cathedrals or stately choirs or sermonic eloquence or soaring liturgies. But in the indwelling glory of the invisible God, a hidden, unseen glory that the world knows nothing about and can't understand. But it is the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In him, God's glory entered our world to die for our sins, to rise again for our justification. Jesus is the glory in our midst. Presence, even now, fills to its unbounded limits the fire surrounded city, that holy city in which you and I hold eternal citizenship as members of his church. Well, if you'll permit me to say a few more words, I have a very brief few comments on the rest of the passage. I don't like skipping over verses at the same time. I know I've already said plenty and you get the point. And verses 6 through 13 are simply kind of an explanation, an application of 
the visions, okay? So the speaker is still the angel of the Lord. We know who that is. He's speaking about how he would change the world by entering into the world. He's speaking about what will happen after he enters the world and accomplishes a saving purpose for which he was sent. And he's saying to us, the church, he's saying essentially, you now know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. I have already come into the world. I have already delivered you out of the city of destruction and have incorporated you into the city of the living God. Today I dwell in your midst. O Zion, today you are my people. Today you are my plunder. Today you are my portion. Today you are the precious apple of my eye. So that's the gist, but what do we do with that? How, oh, how do we, what are we supposed to, to do in response? And here we have in our text three commands, three imperatives, calls to action. The first appears in verses 6 through 7. There's this, just as I said, three. And I'm not going to say much about any of them. Forward, but the first begins, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So this call to action underscores the need for, for separation, coming out and being separate. In Zechariah's day, these two cities assume symbolic value by this time, okay? Because the literal Zion was still in ruins. The literal Babylon had already fallen. This prophecy then is not about those two literal cities. Really, in, these, in this forward-looking prophecy, Zion stands for the city of God, the center of God's kingdom, the church with glory within. Babylon stands for the city of man, the center of opposition to God's kingdom. It's a symbol of all that's hostile to God and his people. So Babylon has been called by commentators, the world and its determined organized enmity against God, a world on which God has already passed judgment. And so this command is calling on the people of God in every age to be the worldly city, since they cannot dwell there without risking participation in its judgment. And to come home, to come and flee to the place of God's presence, his glory, to join in wholeheartedly with what God is doing in Zion. And so there are these two cities, and the choice between them is binary. It must be Zion or Babylon, and, one must, and, and ours must be a choice for Zion, a choice to break solidarity with the world that rejects God. To separate from the worldly tendencies that would imprison us. We must reject its standards and repudiate its ways, embracing those of the city of God to which we flee for salvation and eternal security. I had a nice quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I'll skip it. The second command is addressed to those already in God's city. It says, rejoice, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Verse 10. It was for the sake of this second command that the great promises of blessing were given to Zechariah's generation. They were exhorted to celebrate the future that awaited, that was to come, to rejoice in what God was going to do when Christ would change the world by entering the world. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. 
and many nations. We're back to that same image there of the ingathering of Gentiles. Then many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And beloved, that day, of course, has arrived. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Jesus dwells in our midst. We have joined ourselves to him. We are his people. We are his hereditary portion or his inheritance. We have come to Zion, the city of the living God. And isn't that, is that not great enough to inspire rejoicing with songs in our hearts? All right, just thinking about that, we don't rejoice because we're commanded to rejoice. We don't sing because we're commanded to sing. No, we sing and rejoice in response to this reality. We consider the incarnation of Christ and his death and resurrection for us. We consider the real presence of Christ with us. We consider all the blessings of the covenant that he conveys to us. We consider all the glorious provisions of grace that he has made for us. Is that not great enough to inspire you to sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion? And then the chapter concludes with one last command. It's addressed to all mankind. Be silent before the Lord. Now this presents something of a contrast because verse 10 tells us to shout out in joy, right? right? Gre greeting the Lord with the sound of triumph and gladness, sing and rejoice. Yes, True that, but ours is not a boisterous, raucous happiness of the city of man, as one writer put it. Rather, ours is that joy that is compatible with a quiet and submissive spirit, with reverent silence and awed respect, even trembling before his holy presence. And surely this speaks to the character of true worship. The worship of the church, the, the church's worship. The Lord is the focus of what we're doing, and we are attentive to Him. Right? As one writer said, I'll, I will add this quote uh, We are still, or in other words, we are silent before the Lord, and they're still in that sense, because His activity is what matters, not ours. His word is what we need to hear and understand, not ours. His presence calms our fears and stills the torrents of our soul as no human therapy can do. So be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And all flesh, as I said, includes all mankind, not only those in Zion, but those in Babylon as well. You could say it just as school children uh, in a classroom who've been chattering confidently in the absence of their teacher are, you know, silenced by word of his return. So the rebellious nations who have been confidently posturing and boasting of their strength are summoned to be silent before the all-powerful, the omnipotent one, to be silent in the face of his coming judgment. In the language of Psalm 2, bow down now while there's still time to receive his mercy or you'll certainly be destroyed by his wrath. Kiss the sun now, lest his anger be kindled against you. So to conclude, Zechariah's generation, like ours, 
was required to choose between two cities and two destinations. For them, it must be Babylon or Zion. It could not be both. And beloved, this is a choice we also must make. Flee from the city of destruction. Flee from the wrath to come, declares the Lord. Let us flee the city of this world and all that it loves. Let us instead come to the city of God, joining ourselves to the Lord as his people and rejoicing with songs in our hearts. And there, in the true temple of the living God, let us be still before the Lord, worshiping him with reverence and awe. Through Jesus Christ, God has roused himself from his holy dwelling to live among us and to make us his people forever. God's glory entered into our world in order that we might enter into the glory of God's world. And our life, and indeed our worship, reflect the extent to which we comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of such wondrous love and amazing grace. As we pray together. Heavenly Father, we have so much to, to think about and take in from this passage. Help us to meditate upon it and to live in light of the truths that are revealed, those unseen realities that have made us part of the new creation and to put into practice the commands that we have also been challenged by as your people. And also we pray that the sacrament now would remind us of what is truly central to all preaching and indeed what is central to the entire word of God from Genesis to Revelation as we look to Christ, as we partake in faith uh, of the sacrament of his body and blood. We pray this in his name. Amen.